Psalm 66, uh, we don't get a reference here, as we have with many of these psalms, that this was a psalm of David. So uh, we don't know. Uh, There are different uh, thoughts among commentators in regards to who wrote this psalm. I actually know exactly who it was. Do you want to know who it was? The Holy Spirit. You guys are a smart church. That's great. Hopefully it means you're well taught to some degree. But yes, the Spirit of God wrote this psalm, and who the pencil or the pen was humanly that he chose for this particular psalm, uh, we're not told. Uh, So perhaps it's because every once in a while God wants us just to remember that every one of the psalms, uh, even as every portion of the Word of God, ultimately the author is divine. It's God, it's his Spirit, uh, who just used human instruments to record the things that he wanted said and documented. Uh, Psalm 66, we'll see basically, is a psalm where the psalmist is giving a call to worship God uh, in a way that he is worthy of, in a way that he is deserving of because of his greatness. So you notice it begins by sort of extending a call to worship on a more, you might say, global level or collective level. He speaks to all the earth. And then you'll notice, ultimately, then the uh, wording and the pronouns begin to shift in verse 13 to then a personal level, where we go from all the earth and, uh, in a sense, plural references to then I, I, I in a more personal sense. And uh, the psalmist kind of makes that shift as we get halfway through the psalm. But he begins the psalm in verse 1 by simply saying, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth, Sing out the honor, he says, of his name, make his praise glorious, and say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth, he says, shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. And then there's that little refrain. We've seen it many times. Selah, again, the idea. Think upon this, pause, and meditate. So uh, here as the psalm begins, particularly in verses 1 and 2, we can see that the psalmist basically commands all people, because again, he says all the earth. The idea is no one's excluded from this. Uh, Any person in any nation, in any subculture, rich or poor, young or old, uh, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their location on the planet geographically, he says all the earth is invited. In fact, it seems he's almost commanding here. He says that all the earth, notice, he says, should give passionate and enthusiastic worship unto God. And if you really look at the language here, I do emphasize not just worshiping God. That's that's pretty evident when you read the the terms there about honoring God and and being joyful and giving praise to the Lord and singing to the Lord. The concept of worship is clearly communicated, but it seems that the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is really wanting to drive home as the idea of being passionate and doing such, being enthusiastic. The idea is that you're just... Your heart's really engaged. Your, your mind is connected. It's not just mindless or mechanical or just something that you're doing, <clears throat> excuse me, on a routine level where you're just kind of going through the motions in a mindless way. But if you look at the terms that he's using there, he says, verse 1, make a notice, a joyful shout to God. 
uh, again, not just a, a, a expression, but the idea of a shout indicates, you know, when you shout, you see you're either angry or you're passionate about something. You shout at a sporting event to cheer for your children, or you shout at a sporting event for your favorite team, or some people may shout at a concert. You know, shouting implies that you're doing something with passion. There's enthusiasm. There's excitement. And he says, make a joyful shout. The idea is be so uh, joyful and excited about rejoicing in God and just who he is and how great he is, the wonderful things that he has done, not only just for everyone, but even the awesome works he's done as he's going to talk about in your own life, the greatness of his power. And, and that when you think about that, you think about the greatness of God and how worthy and deserving he is of worship and his greatness, that it would make you want to just with enthusiasm, make a joyful shout to the Lord. That you wouldn't just kind of mumble some phrases under your breath, but that you just with, with joy and celebration and passion give worship under him. He says as well there in verse 2, sing out the honor of his name. And again, the idea, sing out. Again, we're not just mumbling the words kind of under our breath, but, but sing out. The idea is sing, man. Just let it go. Just express it to the Lord. No, it doesn't matter what it's, it sounds like. Maybe other people may not be as appreciative of it, but God loves it. And so he just says, sing out to the Lord. Don't hold back. And again, I think that's just something we all maybe to some degree have to overcome a little bit. You know, the only reason why we don't truly sing out, we just really let it go, is really our own human inhibitions. It's not as if God is up there saying, uh, you know, you don't qualify for American Idol or you're going to get the buzzer on AGT and just get off the stage. Oh, that's horrible. You know, God's never going to do that. God wants to hear us sing out to him. It is one of the means whereby he's not only given to us the opportunity to worship him and to express worship, but he actually asks of us. He wants us to worship him in this way. And he is God. He's worthy of our worship. So again, the Holy Spirit prompts us in regards to worshiping God. Sing out, he says, sing it out. Sing out the honor of his name. That's the idea, the honor of his name. Why do we do it? As we've talked about this many times before, the Holy Spirit gives guidance to us here that the whole reason why we worship is it is for God's honor. We're honoring him. That's why we do it. That is the primary sole reason why we give worship is because we are trying to honor him because he is a great king. He's worthy of our praise, and we want to honor him because of who he is and what he has done. And he says, make his praise, again, glorious. So again, you could just sense the enthusiasm. He's saying, get excited about worship. Let your heart be fully engaged. And I'll tell you, something really wonderful happens when you just set aside your own pride and your human inhibitions, and you just let a little passion and, and excitement enter into your worship. You know, we get excited and passionate about a lot of things. Uh, sometimes I feel like at God's people, we get a little too dull and mechanical when it comes to worshiping the Lord. And, and I'm not into hyper-emotionalism and being distracting and doing things to extremes, but I think there's a place. God's given us emotions, and God's given us passion and enthusiasm. And certainly if there's somewhere we should express it, it is at time to time in an appropriate way in our worship unto God as a great king. And then verse three, he tells us some guidance regarding, well, well, what should we shout to God? What should we express to God? What should we sing out to God? Well, the Holy Spirit says, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you some guidance. Here's some things you can express to God. He says, verse three, say, notice, to God. Again, we're not singing for the sake of singing. We're not singing about God. We're, 
we're singing to God. We're, we're praising God. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. So he says, here are some things we should say to God. And again, I don't think the implication here is in a mechanical way, how awesome are your works. Uh, it's not a, not a rote routine, you know, like some people even use, you know, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven. Just, I don't think that was ever intended to be used in just a rote religious way. It was a, it was a, a, a paradigm of how to pray and something that our heart was to be engaged in, not just something we were to ramble off in a mindless way. And so he's not saying, look, mechanically say these things. The implication here in verse 3 is... You want to know what to express to God and say to God? Express to God, he says, first of all, how impressive and how amazing the ways are in which he works. He says, say to God, Lord, it is so awesome the way you worked in that situation. Lord, this this is so awesome the way that you worked in that situation or how you're working in this situation or the thing that you did. Lord, that is impressive. That's awesome, man. That, that is really incredible. And to just express to God in your own way through songs and through your own words, Lord, the idea of awesome is amazing and impressive. Lord, that's really amazing what you did. And to just in the midst of using the lyrics to songs that we sing, be able to express to God that it's impressive and amazing the way that he works. Also, that we would express to God the great power that he possesses to do absolutely anything. That's what he means in verse three when he says that we should say to God through the greatness of your power. Again, Lord, your power is so great. And again, as we sing using the lyrics of the worship songs and choruses and hymns that we, we have, that we would be seeking to convey to God, Lord, your power is so great. How great thou art, right? That beautiful hymn. And just expressing to God, telling him how amazingly powerful that he is. Lord, thank you that your power is so great that you can do anything, God. That you can part waters and you can, you know, do incredible, amazing, powerful things. And that God would love to hear that from us, that we're honoring him for that reality of who he is. And the very fact as well, he says, through the greatness of your power, that your enemies shall submit themselves to you. So Lord, the idea is, Lord, thank you that you're able to overcome anyone who tries to resist you, God. Thank you that you are a victor. Thank you that Jesus is victorious, that though you have enemies, God, that are opposed to you and try and hinder the work of God or stop the ways of God, Lord, we thank you that, that, that the greatness of your power will cause all of your enemies to ultimately submit. That Lord, in the end, no man is going to conquer you. No one is going to stop what you're going to do. And that is we're worshiping and praising God, singing out his praise. We would be expressing to him how glad we are that he defeats all who resist him, that he overcomes any enemies and obstacles that come against him and his people's lives, you and I as well. And he says, verse four, and all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Again, the Holy Spirit reminds us that one of the primary ways that we're given to worship God is to offer him singing as the idea is like, like a sacrifice. The Bible speaks of the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto his name. And in the Old Testament, the Jews understood you brought a sacrifice to the temple. You actually brought something. It cost you. You brought something of your flock, but there was something of personal cost and you brought it 
to a particular location, to the temple, to the house of God, and you offered it on the altar under the Lord as an act of worship. Well, the Bible says that we don't bring to God animal sacrifices, but the Bible does say that one of our sacrifices, Hebrew says, is that we bring to God the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name, expressing that to him. And one of the ways we do that is through singing, of course, making musical sound with one's voice. And, and, you know, it is interesting. I kind of thought about how, as he says here at the end of verse four, sing praises to you, sing praises to your name. You know, sometimes we say in conversation, boy, that guy was really singing your praises, man. Or, 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 you know, she was really singing your praises. And we know what we mean by that. When somebody's singing your praises, the idea is they're saying good things about someone in an enthusiastic way. Boy, they're, re- they're really singing his praises or singing her praises. Well, that's the idea. We should be singing in a way where we're saying good things about God in an enthusiastic way through music and through song. He says, verse five, then come and see the works of God. He is awesome, the psalmist says, in his doing. You could tell the Holy Spirit likes the word awesome. Yeah, so it seems like he keeps referring to that. How awesome he is in his doing toward the sons of men. He then describes verse six. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we will rejoice him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. And again, the psalmist says, Selah, think upon that or consider it. So verse five, you see there an invitation being given to come and basically to evaluate the things that God has done. He says, come, behold, consider, take some time to ponder, to really evaluate and see the ways that God has worked, to consider the works of God that that were invited by the Holy Spirit to come and do that and to see how he is truly awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. Again, that he has worked in very impressive ways towards people, that he has done amazing things for the sons of men on earth from time to time. And then it's almost as if in verse six, the psalmist led by the Holy Spirit mentions just a few examples of that. He says, come, let's consider for a few minutes. Take a look. He says, come and see the incredible, awesome works that God has done. And he says, let me mention one or two. He mentions two very prominent things that we know from the Old Testament accounts that God did for the nation of Israel. Verse six, he mentions how God turned the sea into dry land. That no doubt is a reference to the exodus out of Egypt. And when God parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel under the leadership of Moses, remember, as God led them out of Egypt to bring them out of their bondage and slavery and into the promised land, it tells us that as they began to uh, leave, that Pharaoh had a change of heart. And after he had let them go, he then decided he wasn't going to do that. And he went pursuing after them. And there ultimately, as Pharaoh was pursuing them from behind, they came to the Red Sea. It seems there was sort of a mountainous range on each side of them, the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh and his army breathing down their necks. So they find themselves really in a spot where they're stuck. There's nowhere to turn. There's no way forward. There's a threatening thing behind them. There's obstacles no matter which way they turn, and they find themselves in this predicament. And ultimately, what does God say? He says, 
Tell the people to stand still and they're going to see the salvation of the Lord. And he says, Moses, put your rod in the water and tell the people to go forward. And ultimately, as God tells them to do this and they trust the Lord in faith, what does God do? God parts the Red Sea. And it doesn't say just say he parts the Red Sea to make a path to go forward. But literally, as the Holy Spirit reminds us here, and I think this is the key, he turned the sea into dry land. Again, if you go down to the beach and you walk out into the ocean, it's, it's kind of muddy and mucky and, and your feet can get... God parted the sea and then after that, in another miracle, he dried up the ground, the bottom of the seabed, so that upwards to two million people, men, women, children, animals, chariots, could cross over the Red Sea and that they could make their way across. And then what did God do? Then as the Egyptians pursued them, God let the waters come back upon them and got rid of their enemies to protect and to preserve them. So he speaks here again of the works of God, how he was awesome in his doing as in the indication of the Red Sea, God made a way where there had never been a way available before. And that's an awesome work of God, that God has the ability to make a way in a situation where there had never been a way to do that before. And sometimes we find ourselves in those spots, right? We, we're stuck in a situation and we think, I, I just, I don't, there's no way. There's, I can't go back. I can't go this way. I can't go that way. And there is no way I can go forward. That is an impossible obstacle. Prior to that time, people weren't parting seas. And so they're in this situation and they're realizing there is no matter which way we turn, there is no way forward. And God said, there's always a way forward. Because I can make a way where there's never been a way before. And God miraculously intervenes and he does something that had never been done before. And he makes a way where there was no way. And yet God has the power to do that. It's part of the wonderful works of God, the awesome things that God can do. And here he refers to that. It was a way to get them out of something that there was no way that they could get out of. Ever been in a situation where there is just no way I can get out of this? And God says, right, there's the key. There's no way that you can get out of this. But I can get you out of this. I can make a way where there was never a way before, and I can make a way and, and miraculously do something to make a way to get you out of something that you could never get out of yourself. I can make a way to get you forward into the thing that I want you to do. Part the seas, open a door. And again, this is what God can do. He can deliver us from an unpleasant situation. That was the Exodus story. They were in a very unpleasant situation in their bondage in Egypt. And God said, I want to get you out of that unpleasant situation. Well, you don't understand. We've been in this unpleasant situation forever. We're stuck. We're stuck. And whether that's an unpleasant, wrong relationship, whether that's an unpleasant, wrong situation, whether that's an unpleasant, wrong, whatever it may be, you fill in the blank. God can make a way and deliver you out of that. God can make a way to get you out of something and to move you forward into the thing that he wants for you, the promised life, the blessed life that he intends God did it for Israel, and God hasn't changed. And this is the thing that we as well should be willing to sing out the praises of God as well. Lord, this is the kind of God that you are. You did it for Israel. You can do it in our lives. And then he refers to another occasion where God showed his great power and his ability. In verse 6, when the children of Israel then later on went through the river on foot. Same thing as they came to the Jordan River after 40 years wandering around the wilderness. 
right? God had disciplined them. They didn't believe the Lord. They had disobeyed God, not entered in faith the first time like they were supposed to. Eventually, they find themselves back at the Jordan River, and they're thinking, uh, I don't know. And just and, and Lord says, go forward. Well, you don't want to go forward. I know you're saying there are promises there, and I, I know you're giving us promises, Lord, that you're going to give this promise to us, and we're going to experience the, but there's a problem. There's an obstacle between us and that plan that you have for us. So how do we get to that plan? How do we experience that promise? And again, what does the Lord do? The same thing. God repeats the same work 40 years later in just a little different way in a different place, but he does the same thing, not exactly the same way. This time he parts the Jordan during flood stage. And again, he faithfully demonstrates just like I did it before, I can do it again. And how wonderful, again, as God showed them, as he did it for one generation, he did it again for the next generation. And I think that's a good reminder for us as well. Even as we think about these things and how water oftentimes is a picture of the ministry of the Spirit, as God brought them into the promised land crossing the Jordan, that was a picture of bringing them into the promised land, which was a picture of the promised life in the Spirit. A life of blessing and abundance and conquering enemies and experiences a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and look... I think sometimes we can look at the things that God has done in the past in prior generations and, and, and we almost sometimes lose heart thinking, well, I mean, yeah, God did that in that generation. But the reality is, is look, the next generation, God did the same thing for them. It was a little bit different, but God did it again. And I think we need to remember that. And, and as they had to step forward in faith, that water did not part in the Jordan until what? Till the priest put their foot in the water. Until they put their little toe in the water, that water did not part until they took the step of faith. And that's often key in following the, the plan of the Lord. Sometimes we have to take that initial step of faith. We want, Lord, part the water, then I'll go through it. Oh, that's not how it works. He says, you, I said I'm going to part the water. I've told you I've given you promises, but you've got to take the step of faith and put your foot in the water cooperate with me in faith and then when you finally put your foot in the water showing me you're committed to step forward i'll by my power do everything else and as they step forward in faith the waters parted and not only have to step forward in faith but then remember all, all those carrying the ark they had to stand there in the jordan while everybody crossed so that was stepping out in faith and then it also involves standing in faith for a period of time why those raging waters were there. And I imagine those who were having to stand in the middle were going, can you hurry? Can you hurry? Can you hurry? I mean, that looks pretty dangerous. But again, sometimes we step out in faith and there's that standing in faith aspect. And this is what God does. And he preserves and shows his power. And despite all the nations were doing around them, it was God's great power. And it has always been God's great power. That's why he says in verse seven that God rules by his power forever again you can go through all the empires of humanity you know the assyrian empire the babylonian empire the medo-persian empire the roman empire all down through human history and every time the nations and the empires of men seemed to be doing what they were doing all the while god was ruling by his power and god will continue to rule forever and ever there's a throne that never changes no election does anything to disrupt it. doesn't matter what's happening on the earth. God, he says, rules forever, and Christ will come ultimately and establish his rule upon this earth. And, and he says, therefore, it's just vain, he says. Don't let the rebellious exalt themselves. He says, it's just a vain effort when men 
somehow think they can overthrow what God's intentions are. Then verse 80 invites us again to respond to this great thing of how wonderful God is, that as we really consider these things, he, this should invoke, he says, uh, worship from us. He says, verse 8, Oh, bless our God, you peoples, and make, notice again, the voice of his praise to be heard. The idea is God says, don't praise me under your breath. Make it to be heard. Sing it out loud, and when you praise the Lord, don't be afraid even to praise the Lord in front of other people. Make his praise to be heard. Don't be bashful, God says. Let people hear that you are not ashamed to say, God is really great, man. Can I tell you what God did in my life? And I'll tell you, a lot of times, that's some of the most powerful testimony, right? Is just to tell people what God did in your own life. Just this past week, I was outside mowing my lawn, and one of my neighbors stopped by because we're new in the neighborhood. We sold our other home and downsized to a small ranch, and we live in a harbor township now. And so I've been little by little meeting the neighbors, and he came by and just introduced himself. And of course, you know, as he came up, you know, he was. You know, trying to really he was trying to sell me on solar ultimately, but he was he was saying he was saying hello to me. Um, but he then he dropped the phrase something like something something. I just want to drop a blessing on you by, you know, helping you out or something like that. So I thought, well, I said, oh, you're a Christian, and and then of course you know it, it created an opportunity for a spiritual dialogue and and just to kind of listen to where he was at or whatever. And and I could tell. I mean, he was all over the map. So I just took a few minutes and 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 just told him what God had done in my life. And I realized, you know, I don't really feel like this is the moment to, you know, quote a bunch of Bible verses over and over to him. I could just tell he wasn't receptive. We just met, but I just said, look, I you know, became a born again Christian at this stage of my life. And I just kind of honestly and openly just told him what God had done in my life and how he had changed me as a young man right after high school. And it just was an opportunity to, again, just boldly and honestly, just to just talk good about God. You know, I just read that morning in my devotions where Jesus talked about, you know, let your light so shine before men. They see your good works. They'll glorify your father in heaven and just telling them the good things that God has done. So he says, make the voice of his praise to be heard. Tell people uh, good things about God. He says, verse nine, who keeps our soul referring to God. He keeps our soul among the living. The idea there notice is that God's preservation of our soul among the living. The implication there is because of who God is, uh, despite what we experience in this life on this earth among the living, it is God who ultimately determines if our soul is going to be preserved or not. If we're going to continue to live on among the living. So whether this experience happens or that illness happens, or he says it is God who keeps our soul here among the living and God who then determines when our soul no longer will be here among the living and when we'll be brought into his presence, but it's the keeping power of God. And that's a wonderful thing to be able to rest in. Lord, I don't have to live in constant anxiety and fret and fear this and worry about that. I can just, Lord, you've numbered my days and Lord, I'm going to be a good steward and I'm going to serve you, but it's you who keeps my soul here among the living. And when you're done with my soul here among the living uh, to depart and be with Christ, Paul said, it's far better. So we actually gain something better when our time comes to a close. And he says, so it's he who keeps our soul among the living and he also who does not allow our feet to be moved. So if God wants us to stay on a path, then he's going to preserve our steps. He's not going to let us slip the ideas. He doesn't allow our feet to be moved. He's going to protect and preserve us from slipping and stumbling and keep us on that path. For you, he says, verse 10, O God, 
have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You've laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out into rich fulfillment. So take notice here. The psalmist is basically describing here how at times God had allowed his people to be able to be subjected to experiences that tested them. And this was certainly true of the nation of Israel from time to time, both nationally as a people, as God's congregation, and even certainly on personal levels. And the psalmist here is just acknowledging that. And again, not afraid in faith and humility, trusting that God is good, trusting that God is powerful. He's willing to actually say, for you, God. Notice he keeps saying, God, you did these things and you allowed these things to happen. He says, you, O God, You've tested us. You've allowed us to be subjected to experiences that have put us to the test. Ever had those times where God looks upon our life? And think about this again. Any good teacher, uh, you know, or any sporting coach or whatever. I mean, when, when you put a test before your students, the idea isn't to make them feel horrible. I know that's what we always thought. Oh, the idea of a test was to measure where you're at, right? Isn't that the whole con- – the idea of the test was take this test and let's see where you're actually at. Let's see where you're at in development and learning and understanding and, and your degree of knowledge and your ability to handle or you know, work certain, certain math formulas that you – the idea was to put into practice and see where you really were. It was a way for them to evaluate that, but really to the greatest degree, it was really more for us to see where we were really at, and that happened when we – took the test and then saw the grade and then we find out where we're at and we realize where we need to improve or how well we're doing or not doing for that matter and so god again god doesn't give us a test to make us fail continually in fact with god you can't fail a test with god you'll just keep taking it and taking it and taking it until you pass the test because god cares about us and he's a great teacher So with God, you don't really fail the test. You just keep repeating that test. And God says, come on, let's pass this one because I got another test for you. (laughs) Let's pass this one so you can develop and move on to greater things. I can take you to, you know, to, to 102 and to 202. And he just wants to keep progressively developing us. But he says here, Lord, he says, wow, you have, you've tested us, Lord. You've let us go on through some things that have really tested us. And you've refined us as silver is refined. Again, precious metals were always refined, gold and silver. And the, the, the purpose of refining those precious metals was to do multiple things. It was to increase their value. It was to uh, you know, extract impurities that would cause the metal to be defiled and ruined more easily. It was to increase the strength of the metal and to increase the usability of the metal. And so they would take that metal and they would put it to the test. They would put it in the smelter's pot and they would heat up the fire and bring it to a liquid boil, whether it was gold or silver. And then they would slag off what they would refer to as the impurities that would rise to the surface. And they would take that off as they would seek to make it more pure and make it stronger and more valuable. And it's a picture of what the Bible says God does in our lives. And we see this in the New Testament. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about how our faith being more precious as gold at times is subjected to testing in the fires 
that we go through. And again, the idea is God's purifying our faith. He's strengthening it. And he's causing us to be developed. And so just like the refining of silver and gold is refined, God does that refining work in my life and your life too. And it's to get out of our lives things that aren't good in our lives. Lord, I feel like I'm in the fire, man. But right in the fire, God's getting things out of your life. He's getting the junk out of us. Because in the fire, things rise to the surface. Attitudes and responses and desires and, and, and actions. And God's making that junk, that scum come to the surface. And he's saying, yeah, I got to get that out of your life. I, I got to get a little bit more of this pride out of your life, a little more of this selfishness out of your life. A little, and he just, little by little, he turns up the heat and, and then he just gets that stuff out of our life as he's refining us. Again, why? Not because he wants to torture us, because like the metal, the gold and silver, he's trying to make our lives more valuable. He's trying to make our lives more usable to make us stronger in faith, stronger in the things of the Lord, and to just increase our spiritual value in our relationship with him. So there is that refiner's fire that we go through from time to time, even as Israel did. He says of this experience of being tested and refined, he says, Lord, and you brought us into the net and laid affliction on our backs. Well, that doesn't sound fun, being brought into a net speaks of what losing your freedom and now being brought into a net involves you know little fishies are free to swim wherever they want and when they get caught in a net they're not free anymore they just lost their freedom and he says interesting lord through your sovereign allowance you have brought us into the net lord you've allowed us to lose our freedom wow lord you would do that to teach us things, to test us, to see where we're at, to refine us spiritually. Lord, you would allow us to lose our freedom. He says, Lord, you have caused men to ride over our heads. You've laid affliction on our backs. What does that speak of? That speaks of suffering mistreatment like slaves, being dominated by cruel masters, by overlords, laying affliction Upon people's backs, men riding over our heads. That speaks of, again, mistreatment and being abused unfairly by people who are in authority over you. And he says, Lord, you've allowed this. Boy, these are interesting concepts. God allowed the nation to experience that for his own sovereign purposes of what he was doing in his people's lives. And look, there may be times to time where we go through certain things where God even permits and allows mistreatment no you wouldn't let somebody mistreat us god you what if he's trying to teach us something you know how do we truly walk out things like not to realize it's more on a personal level and just read in my devotions not too long ago where jesus in in matthew chapter five there is beginning to say things like people who are your enemies who persecute you who say things falsely against you, who mistreat you. And what does Jesus say? Love them, pray for them, bless them. If they slap you on one cheek, protest in front of their Capitol building. No, he doesn't say that. Turn them the other cheek. If they compel you to go one mile, compel us to do something. He says, go with them two miles. I'll tell you what, you want us to do that? We'll, all right, we'll, we'll even go another mile. We'll, we'll go a mile further. And again, 
Sometimes there are lessons to be learned and testimony to be given, even as God sovereignly allows certain things to happen. And here the nation of Israel, from time to time, they were subjected to some hard things. They said, Lord, we went through fire and through water. Again, both of those can be destructive experiences, the fire and the water, dangerous and destructive things. Sometimes we're subjected to the fires and the floods of life, whether, again, on a national level, just in our own personal lives. Maybe something painful's happened in our own life. But notice the end result. And he says, but you, and the last thing he says about God, you brought us out into what? Rich fulfillment. In other words, he says, God, you let these things happen. In fact, to some degree, God, you allowed them. And sometimes it seems you almost brought them to pass, but you brought a profitable end result for us. You brought us out into being more rich and abundant and fulfilled people. He says, you brought us out into greater enrichment. There was a profitable result for their benefit as people in the end. And I think that's what we got to remember when we have those experiences, when we go through hardships and trials and the fire and the flood and we're being refined or we're being tested. And these are all different kinds of things, trials and things that we go through, even mistreatment and hardships, wrong things people do to us that we can trust that what is our God able to do? The Bible says he can take a curse and turn it into a blessing. And it says that God can work all things together for what? The good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we can rest in that. Lord, ultimately, you will bring us out the other side in a way where we will be more enriched spiritually. There will be a profitable result that benefits us in the end. And I think that helps navigate it when we see how God does that from time to time. And then when we go through it again, we can trust the Lord's still gonna work. He says, verse 13, on a personal level, now I will go into your house with burnt offerings. Again, the burnt offering was the offering of dedication where you gave the fullness of the animal. I'm gonna go into your house, God, and fully dedicate myself. And I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered. And my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. Notice that, underline it, when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt sacrifices of fat animals with the sweet aroma of rams. I will offer bulls with goats. So here he speaks about giving offerings of worship to the Lord as an individual in response to the things that we've seen God do in our lives And it's very interesting when you look at verses 13 and 14 here, notice the psalmist is indicating, Lord, I want to follow through with honoring you in the things that I know that I ought to do. Yes, I want to bring you my burnt offerings and regularly worship you. But he says, I also, verse 13, want to pay my vows to you. That is the commitments I've made to you. The things, God, where on occasion I've said, Lord, I'm going to commit to do this for your sake, or I'm going to devote myself to doing this. He says, I I want to be someone who keeps my word and I want to pay my vows and I want to follow through. And isn't it interesting when he refers to the vows that he made? Look how honest the psalmist is here. He says, I will pay you my vows, verse 14, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. Well, who's not done that before, right? When the crisis happens, I mean, how many of us, even before we knew God, before we genuinely even really knew the Lord, something would happen, Lord. If you're there and you get me out of this, I promise, you know, I will, 
or, or whatever. Lord, if you do this or you help me win the lottery, I promise I will give all of Lord, if you just get me this job, I promise I will. And, and we, well, all these vows we make when we're in a crisis, Lord, if you just you know, bring this person into my life, I promise. I'll, then a year later, Lord, if you just get this person out of my life, I promise I'll never do that again. I'll think more about the relationship. You know, and we, in crisis, we're always making vows to the Lord. And here the psalmist just so honestly says, Lord, I'm going to honor my vows, which she says, I admit my mouth spoke when I was in trouble. Verse 16, he says, come and hear all you who fear God. And I will declare, notice again, he says, I will declare what he has done for my soul. I want to tell people what God's done for our soul. I cried to him with my mouth. He was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. The idea is there was an iniquity in his heart. He was thankful God had heard his prayer. He's attended to the voice of my prayer. So blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. Now notice the last thing the psalmist indicates here. Two important things he points out. First of all, the psalmist's great appreciation for what God had done for his soul. And then he connects that to, when you look at verses 17 through 20, how God delights to listen to, and not just listen to, but to respond in answer to our prayers. And this is what he's celebrating. Lord, he says, certainly you have heard me. You've attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God. He didn't turn away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. He's saying God delights to hear our prayers. God likes when we pray to him. God likes when we ask things of him and expect him to work and look to him to do things in our life that we need him to do in our weakness. And because he's a good father, God delights to listen to and respond to our prayers. But then he adds this little caveat, which is an important thing to take note of. Verse 18, which is this is one major hindrance to prayer. And one major hindrance to prayer, he clearly specifies, he says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And the idea clearly, because from the other verses, he's not saying that God can't hear. He's saying that in essence, God won't hear, right? It's the same idea that somebody may be trying to talk to you and you hear their voice, but you may not be listening to what they're saying, right? And, and, and it goes in one ear, out the other, or we can have somebody talking to us, but if we don't want to hear them, we can just ignore, in a sense, what they're saying. And this is the picture here. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, that word regard, the idea there is to cherish something as valuable. If I cherish something as valuable or I delight in something more than God himself, that is wrong, iniquity, sin. That's what he's talking about. If I cherish my sin more than repenting of my sin and being right with God, then he says God reserves the right to say, though I love you and it doesn't change our relationship, fellowship between you and I is not right right now. And so therefore... Until you're willing to forsake that out of having greater love for relationship with me, the way I'm going to get your attention is I'm not working. You can ask everything you want under the sun, but I'm turning the valve off. And he says, Lord, simply 
won't hear. He'll choose, in a sense, to, in a sense, go silent, to ignore, to choose not to respond when he could respond. And so he says, if I cherish or regard some iniquity or sin in my heart, then I create a hindrance to prayer because fellowship between me and God is broken. Look, any marriage understands that. My wife and I can have an argument. It happens about every 10 to 12 years. We have one periodically. And if, and if I do something to offend or to hurt my wife, we're still married. It doesn't change the relationship. But if I act like a jerk and I do something and I offend her relationally and I don't apologize for it or until I make it right and I choose to be stubborn and keep the, the offense there, then I can tell you what happens. She doesn't really want to hear anything I have to say. And, and because re- the fellowship is broken, the relationship is broken. And that's the idea there. And sometimes people can begin to cherish a sin in their life. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's some you know sexual impropriety that they're involved in. Whatever it may be, you know. And and there's some pet sin. Maybe it's a, a, a issue with substance abuse, or there's just some area of let's say it's unforgiveness, bitterness refusal to to make things right in a relationship and 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 we regard and cherish our right to keep doing that and we cling to that and we keep doing that whether we're doing it secretly and nobody else but us and god who's seeing it anyway knows about it or whether we're just doing it defiantly and god says okay as long as you cherish that and that's more important to you than being right relationship with me then then god says then I'll let you keep doing things your way. And God shuts off the valve. That's not a good place to be. I don't want to be in a place where God says, you can ask all you want. I hear you, but I'm not going to respond. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, a a very similar thing. Let me read you Isaiah 59 here. He declares something very similar. Isaiah 59 says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he, it says, will not hear. That is, he reserves the right to say, if you want your sin more than you want a right relationship with me, then I simply won't hear. I won't listen and I won't respond to what you're asking. You know, the Bible even goes so far in the New Testament to caution husbands. It tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're to cherish our wives and, and to honor them as the weaker vessel and, and to care for them properly and tenderly. And then he goes so far to say this, lest your prayers be hindered. Ouch. Every time I'm doing premarital counseling, I always you know, share that with the husbands. I always try and do a personal session alone with just the guys at the end. And I always say, look, man, I apologize. That there's, there's nothing in there like that for the girls. Apparently, they can be mean to us. And God, you know, I understand that. I have three daughters. I'm favorable. It's always the guy's fault. It's never my daughter's fault, right? I, so I, I don't know, but there's, there's nowhere that that severity is there towards the wife in a relationship. But God says to the husband, you're a leader. I expect more of you. And so God says, if you don't treat my daughter right... 
and cherish her and treat her like a valuable, more delicate, weaker vessel and honor her spirit and her heart and take care of her. God says, something's not going to be right between me and you. Your prayers are going to be hindered. That's a scary thing. Again, I can understand that. If somebody mistreated one of my daughters, things wouldn't be right relationally, right? Got that right? Just check. He's still dating my daughter, so I can say those kind of things. It wouldn't be working. And so God's a loving father. And so he says, if you do such, be careful, lest your prayers be hindered. And these are great reminders to us because here the psalmist indicates God is so powerful. He works in awesome ways. I mean, we're looking at a psalm here where the psalmist is rejoicing in the works of God. He's awesome in his doing. I mean, he's parting the Red Sea. He's parting the Jordan River. He's doing all these powerful things. And the psalmist says, and Lord, you you hear my prayers, and I've seen you act in wonderful ways when I ask things of you. And then he says, but we can actually sabotage our own connection with God. What an incredible balance. He says, God wants to act. God wants to answer our prayers. But he says, be careful. Don't begin to get cavalier with God. Don't think that you can be to disregard and dishonor God and live in blatant, open defiance. And look, we're not talking about stumbling and messing up once in a while. I mean, we'd all be in trouble if that was the case. The idea of regarding sin is that you regard it as so important you just won't stop doing it continually. You remain in it, you continue in it, and you defiantly, rebelliously stay doing something that you know is clearly wrong before God. That's when he says, be careful. That's when relationship begins to break down. Let's pray together.